Now, dear ones, last time we were in our Matthew studies, we had learned, whoops, uh-oh, stand by. There we go. We had learned that we have to judge teachers and really all people by their fruit. And I want you to remember that we had defined fruit as both doctrine and deed, what people believe and what they do. Now, that concept is going to be built on today as Jesus is going to be teaching that many people in the last days will come to him self-deluded, thinking that they belong, but their fruit, their doctrine and deed will show that they really don't belong, that they will not enter into his kingdom. And so before we start, I want to recall that we have a series of four contrasts in people's eternal destiny that we are looking in in these final verses of the discourse on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And so remember the first one was in Matthew seven thirteen through 14 where Matthew talked about there's only two ways. Jesus talked about the narrow way that leads to salvation through faith alone and then the broad way that leads to eternal destruction. Well, the next we saw that there was only two trees, verses 15 through 20. The tree that bears good fruit because they belong to Jesus by faith and everyone outside of Jesus who doesn't bear any fruit, again, who's heading towards destruction. Now we have a contrast today in verses 21 through 23 between two claims. The claim will be on the last day by the unregenerate. They say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name, that in your name? The counterclaim by Jesus is I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Then next time we'll come to the contrast between two builders in verses 24 through 27, where one builds on the rock, messianic salvation, they have everlasting life, and everyone who builds on something else is heading towards eternal destruction. So again, in the section we're on today, many will come to Jesus claiming they knew him, but his counterclaim will prove otherwise. And so as we begin here today in verse 21, Jesus is talking about a real group of people that will be there, I believe, at the white throne judgment, completely self-deluded, thinking that through their works and their profession, they really belong, but their fruit portrays that they really don't. Notice what he says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now, first of all, dear ones, I want to pull up my pointer. I want you to notice here, Jesus is depicting people coming to him saying, Lord, Lord. Now, some scholars have suggested this term Lord is not a declaration of Jesus' deity, but merely a term of respect. And they say that because they're trying to get around how it is that someone could say Lord and perhaps made a habit of it during their life and yet not belong to Jesus. And it is true there are times in the book of Matthew that the term kurios for Lord means simply respect and it doesn't mean someone is God. For example, in Matthew thirteen twenty seven, a slave will call his landowner Lord. Now, does that mean that the slave thought the landowner was God and judge of all? Well, no. In Matthew twenty one thirty, it's used of a son saying to his father, Lord. And of course, the son doesn't think that his earthly father is God in any way. But here, I think it's very obvious that declaring Jesus to be Lord is declaring that Jesus is God, that he is judge of all. Why? Because as we will see in the next verses, this is occurring on Judgment Day. And on Judgment Day, it is apparent, even to the unregenerate, even to those who never belong to Jesus, it will be very apparent exactly who he is, that Jesus is Lord, that he's God and judge of all. So this begs the question then, how is it that someone could be saying, Lord, Lord, in that profession, and yet they don't belong to him? Well, I think the answer is this, is that profession does not necessarily equate to possession. Now, as I say that, I know some of you are probably thinking of that famous verse in Romans ten nine, where the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, that is true, and this does not negate that. Remember, the second part of Romans 10, 9 says you must believe in your heart. I think the emphasis on that second part of Romans 10, 9, believing your heart, is the inward reality of faith. 
Why? Because you're believing that God has raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is often used as a summary of all that Christ has done. And so when it says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, it means you believe in the person and work of Christ. So the point is, in Romans 10, 9, the outer profession or confession is to be stemming from a real possession on the inside. So to me, there are two ways in which someone could say, Lord, Lord, even during their earthly lives and really not belong to Jesus. Number one, they say it, but they don't mean it. They confess it, but they don't possess it. In other words, they use the words, but they don't believe it themselves. That is possible. The second option that I think is possible is that perhaps there are those who confess Jesus, but truth be told, they're professing a different Jesus. Whatever Jesus they're professing, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It may be the Mormon Jesus, it may be the Jehovah Witness Jesus, or it may be some other God, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, in this case, I think it's the former. I think there are people here that Jesus is alluding to, again, at the final judgment, who they confess the words of Christ, but they don't possess saving faith. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice here the contrast. There'll be those who don't belong or confessing or professing Lord, Lord. But notice here the strong contrast of conjunction, but. So there's a contrast between those who merely profess and those who really possess salvation. And what's the difference? It says, but he who does the will of my father is the one who's going to enter. So the dividing line between the mere professor and the possessor is that the one that really has salvation is doing the will of the Father. The will of the Father here I'm defining from what we learned last time as the fruit, both doctrine and deed. So the idea then is I think there's a strong contrast between those who are merely saying it and those who are actually doing the will of the Father in doctrine and deed. Let me uh, have you turn your attention to John 6.29. I want to define doctrine and deed. You don't have to turn there, but if you're a note-taker, jot it down. Do you recall in John 6.29, the Jews had come to Jesus, and they asked him, what must we do that we do the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you must do, that you would believe in the one whom he has sent. So isn't it interesting, oftentimes the gospel is portrayed as the first work of obedience that we must do. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, who is it that heads to destruction? Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to say that faith is a work. It's not. But it's the first element in doing the will of the Father. If you don't come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you don't belong. But also the deeds follow. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, 15, again, jot that down. We're going to talk about the deed side of the equation. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the idea then is if we really believe, we act on that belief and we do the will of the Father. So either way you slice it, whoever was saying, Lord, Lord, here, they didn't have true possession in doctrine and deed of saving faith. That's very clear. Now, when it says he who does the will of the Father, the does here is actually in the present tense. I don't mean to bore you with that, but the idea is it's ongoing action. It probably means it characterizes their life. Now, that does not mean Jesus is teaching sinless perfection, but what I would say is a sanctified direction. That yes, you and I are heading on the narrow path of salvation, doing the will of the Father. Now, the other thing I want to point out is, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? Well, I think the will that's being referred to here is clearly God's revealed moral will. Now, why do I say that? Think about in the scriptures, we'll see two different elements of God's will. We see his decreative will, where God decrees certain things will come about, and they necessarily do. Why? Because he has decreed them, and he is sovereign. Now, some things that are decreed by God are revealed in the Bible. Think about Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy and all the prophecies that we looked at last week. He has decreed a lot of things that he's revealed in the Bible, but there are many things that he has not decreed. If you're on the way home today and you see someone on the side of the road and they've got to change a tire, 
Rest assured that that was decreed by the Lord. He is sovereign even over a flat tire. And yet, that wasn't revealed in the scriptures. Now, why am I laboring this point? Because you're going to be surrounded in your Christian walk by charismatics and Pentecostals who have what I would like to refer to, and I mean this gently, as a walkie-talkie theology. And the idea is that they have to discern the decreative will of God. So it's as if God is speaking to them and he says, uh, Eric, uh, you got to take the Colgate toothpaste, not the crest, over. Roger, God, Colgate, not crest. And they, they go about their lives. I have to have this girlfriend, not that girlfriend, and this car, not that car. I can live here, but not there. And they're trying to discern that will. And they believe if they don't, they will not enter into the kingdom. No, that is not the will that they are on the hook for, nor are you and I. What we are on the hook for is to obey the revealed moral will of God that we see in the scriptures. Under the new covenant, to, Lord, to love the Lord our God with all our being, to love our neighbors ourselves, and all of the associated commands and prohibitions under the new covenant. That's what we are on the hook for. And so rest assured, what Jesus is saying here in this text is that there will be many on the day of judgment who will say, in profession they belong, but because of their faulty doctrine and deed, they will show that in possession of saving faith they don't belong. Very, very sobering indeed. And now as we continue on in verses 22 through 23, Jesus explains how many will be deceived even by their good works. They have good works, they say, and yet they still don't belong to Christ or his kingdom. Notice he goes on, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, the first thing I want to point out in the text is notice that it will be many on that day who confess Jesus as Lord and try to claim that they did works and yet they don't belong. So it's not going to be just a few, it'll be many. Many that are self-deceived. Now, when does Jesus envision this conversation? Well, he envisions this happening on that day. That day is a reference to the future day of the Lord. Remember, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was a time in the future. It's still in our future as we speak today. But it was depicted by the prophets of old as a time in which God would finally and forever judge his enemies and save his people. And so in the prophets, you would often be given a near-term fulfillment of a, what I would say is a minor day of the Lord as evidence that God was good for one day, the future ultimate day of the Lord. For example, if you read Isaiah 13, God talks about the future day of the Lord in which he would judge the entire cosmos, the entire world. But he gives a near-term down payment in the judgment of Babylon in Isaiah's day. That would be what happened in 539 B.C., about 150 years later at the hands of the Medo-Persians. And so the judgment of future Babylon, that's still future in our day, was evidenced by the judgment of the near-term Babylon in Isaiah's day. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord is a broad period of time. It begins with the parousia of Christ, the 70th week of Daniel. Then it extends all the way to eternity. Why? Because forever God is saving his people and forever God is judging his people. And so what point in time in the day of the Lord is this probably happening? I think it's at the white throne judgment. Why? Because they're unbelievers. Only unbelievers will be partakers of the white throne judgment that you read about in Revelation chapter 20. They alone have par, a part in the second death. And so at the great white throne judgment, they will be deceived saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these miracles in your name? And notice all of the list here, the three things are that of what we see in the New Testament epistles later as the charismatic gifts. They're doing the charismata, the gifts, and yet they don't belong. Now, let's take, I'm going to take the first one, but this, what I say about this one applies to the other ones. What does it mean that someone could prophesy in Christ's name and yet not belong to him? Well, first of all, what does it mean here by prophesy? Well, to me, it could be referring to the 
foretelling of the future, but more than likely, because Jesus doesn't define it otherwise, it's probably just the generic sense of speaking for Christ. Whether it's teaching or directing people or whatever it is, it's speaking for Christ in the most functional sense. And notice there are people who are going to claim that they've done this in Christ's name, but they really don't belong. Again, there's two options. Either they really were prophesying in Christ's name, but they themselves didn't believe or act on any of it. Or they're prophesying in the name of a different Christ, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Now, with the former, that they really may be prophesying in Christ's name accurately, but they don't believe it. Think about what the Apostle Paul says. Again, if you're a note-taker, jot down 1 Corinthians 9.27. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says that after he had preached to others, I think presumably in the Corinthian congregation, he disciplined his own body so that he would not be disqualified from the prize. What did Paul mean by that? Disqualified from what prize? I think what Paul is saying very clearly there, 1 Corinthians 9.27, is that he wanted to make sure that as he preached to others, he believed and obeyed it himself lest he fall short of the kingdom and the glories to come. So the point is, as we're going to see in our application, it's not enough just to confess the words. You really have to believe and act as well. That's the idea. Now, what's very interesting is all of this idea of prophesying and casting out demons and doing miracles, all of them, Jesus does not affirm whether they are really genuine or not. In other words, from the text itself, does Jesus say, well, they were genuine works or they're not genuine? He doesn't leave us with that. So I'm just surmising that those are the only two options. Either you do these things and you don't really believe it, or you were doing false deeds. That's it. But at the end of the day, Jesus gives his counterclaim to their claims, and this is the only claim that matters. Their claim doesn't. Jesus' claim in verse 23 is, I never knew you. And this is probably the most frightening clause that any human being will ever hear in the history of the entire world. I never knew you. To those who are self-deceived, I can't imagine what that will be like. Now, when Jesus says, I never knew you, how can that be possible when Jesus, in fact, knows all things? He's God. In fact, remember in John chapter 20, does not Peter say to Jesus, remember, he asked me, he asked Peter, Jesus does. Three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Finally, Peter's exasperated. He says, Lord, you know all things. He knows it all. There isn't one human being that he doesn't know. There's not one scintilla of their being and their body that he doesn't know. So what does Jesus mean, I never knew you? He means he does not know the unregenerate, the unbeliever, the way he does his elect flock. He knows those who belong to him in an intimate way that he does not know those who are outside of his flock. Let me give you a case in point. John 10, 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean he doesn't know of any of the other goats outside of the flock? Or the wolves that are out there, as Bob was teaching us about today? Well, no, he knows cognitively of them, but he doesn't know them in an intimate, loving way. So this is how sometimes knowledge is used in the scriptures when it comes to human beings or God. It's not just cognitive. It is a loving, intimate relationship. Think of Adam. Adam, in Genesis 4.1, it says that he knew his wife. And again, I like to think of the absurd example. Does that mean it's just cognitive knowledge? That if somehow Eve was in a lineup with other women, Adam could say, that one's Eve. Well, no, it doesn't mean that because she bore a son. They, he knew her in an intimate way. In the same way, God knows his elect in an intimate way that he does not know the non-elect. In fact, turn your Bibles to Romans 8.29. I want to gather together some scripture for you to put together so we can build a theology that's biblical. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8.29. 
Romans 8, 29 through 30. Verse 30 is often called the golden chain. But we're going to see in Romans 8, 29, this talk about foreknowledge. And I'm going to show you that foreknowledge is the same as for loving and knowing the elect in a way that God does not know the non-elect. Romans 8, 29, notice how it begins. I hope you've turned there. Notice it says, for those whom he foreknew. Stop there. Remember, this is a hotly debated passage in evangelical circles. The Arminians, who do not believe in unconditional election, what they think this is speaking of is that God looks down the corridor of time and he sees in advance who will choose him. And on that basis, he chooses them. But the question is, how can God not foreknow all people? He knows all things. So obviously, just like in this text, when Jesus says, I never knew you, it's not just cognition. It's not as if Jesus doesn't know something, he's not really God. But rather, those whom he foreknew has to do with the elect that God has decided to intimately love before the foundation of the world. In fact, if you're a note taker, you could literally render it for those whom he foreloved. It's the same idea. So what happens to those whom he foreknew or foreloved? It says he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Stop there. If God knows all people, and therefore that's what Romans 8.29 is about, well, then you would have to have universalism. All would have to be conformed to his image, the image of the son. Well, of course, it's only the elect that are conformed to the image of the son. So notice he says, so that he, that's Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, notice verse 30. This is the golden chain. It says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice all of the verbs are aorist, all past tense, all done in God's eyes. And so if you were foreknown, you were predestined. If you're predestined, you're called. If you're called, you're justified. If you're justified, you are necessarily glorified. And that's not for all people. It's for whom? The flock of Christ. So now do you see then in verse 23 when Jesus says, I never knew you. He's talking about the non-elect He's talking about those who aren't of his flock who never come to saving faith as demonstrated by their fruit in doctrine and deed. In fact, notice he cites now from Psalm 6-8, a passage written a thousand years prior by David. Now Jesus, the greater David, the Lord and judge of all, uses it for judgment. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now the term practice there, I really like that term. In the present tense, it's a, for, for, a form of ergotsamai, which literally means the idea that they're continuously doing this. They're continuously working this lawlessness. Now, the term lawlessness, anomia, is just that. It's outside that which Christ has commanded, and either doctrine or deed, and, and really it's both. So think about those who are practicing, practicing lawlessness, either in their doctrine they proclaim that they belong to Jesus, but they didn't mean it. Or they believed in a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And when it comes to their deeds, either they were doing genuine deeds, but they didn't do it in faith, or they were doing deeds that were never linked to the Jesus of the Bible. Think about those who do deeds and good works, but they don't belong to Christ by faith. Think about that for just a moment. Think about how Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that God looks even at our righteous deeds as filthy rags. Even the righteous deeds we do outside of faith in the Messiah are nothing more than filthy rags before God. Why? Because it's only the elect, those who end up believing in Jesus Christ, who have the imputed righteousness of Christ and the atonement for sins. And so what's being depicted here is those who are outside of that righteousness, you can have by faith alone in Christ alone. 
those who are outside of that imputed righteousness that you have through faith alone in Christ alone, and they are standing on judgment day, and all they have is filthy rags, and they are saying to the Holy One of Israel, you have to accept these. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't. I never knew you. And again, the most frightening words I think anyone will ever hear, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, without genuine faith in the Christ of the Bible, no one will ever enter into the kingdom of God. Some will proclaim that they believe in Jesus, but their doctrine and their deeds will prove otherwise in their lives. Others, and many others, will proclaim and work for a different Jesus than the one of the Bible. Either way, they never belong to Jesus Christ and they will never enter his kingdom. The only people who will ever enter into the kingdom of Christ come to him by faith alone. But it's a faith that will never reside alone. It will always lead to an obedient life doing the will of the Father. Now, with that, let's come to some application points here this morning. I have three of them for you. Number one, we must know that true saving faith leads to obeying God's moral will. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but it's never going to be a faith that resides alone. It it always leads to doing the will of the Father. Number two, we should know that false converts will distort God's revealed moral will in doctrine and deed. It always happens. In both what they teach and what they do, they always show themselves to be false teachers. It always happens. As Peter said, a dog always returns to his vomit. Not a real pretty proverb, but very apropos. Number three, being known by Christ is only true for those who trust in the Jesus of the Bible. If you have some other Jesus than the one of the Bible, Jesus, and you're trusting in that for salvation, Jesus will say to you, I never knew you. Very sobering words. Let's begin with number one. One of the major themes I think that we see here in Matthew seven twenty-one through 23 is the necessity of obedience, obeying the very moral will of the Father. But what I want to do is talk about how do our hands, our mouth, and our feet start obeying the Lord without first a change of our mind. So what I want to lay out for you is that what begins our process of sanctification, or what I like to call transformation, is the renewing of the mind. We start thinking differently. So think about Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So I want you to think about you, yourself at conversion. And I know some of you probably don't know the exact day or uh, maybe even week that you were saved, but you kind of know the season where you started changing your thinking. I remember when it happened to me. I remember the Bible before that was an absurdity. After it, it was the very truth revealed by God. I wasn't afraid of my eternal destiny, but when I believed it, I knew there was a hell. It's those types of ideas that you're converted in. And you know, things that you thought were immoral, all of a sudden you realize, no, that's moral. And the things that you thought were moral, all of a sudden you know that they're immoral. Why? Because you start thinking like the scriptures. And so your whole mind starts changing. And as your mind changes, you start acting differently. So the first battle to be those as Jesus wants us to see here in Matthew 7, to do the will of the Father, is that we start thinking differently. And so that's the idea of repentance. Repentance, metonoeo, is a term that literally means an afterthought. So it's a change first of the mind where I said, you know, I love that idolatry, but I'm changing my mind and I love God. I love that sin, but now I love obedience. I loved rebellion, now I love God. Turning from unbelief, turning to faith. It's that kind of change of the mind, and then it changes your actions. And so this is why, for example, in the Old Testament, listen to how central it is to have a different way of thinking. Here, notice what the psalmist says, Psalm 97.10. He says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Now, notice the command. This is an imperative in the Hebrew. It's a command. Sene ra'ah. Hate evil. It's a command. Why? Because you love the Lord. You who love the Lord are to hate what is evil. 
And so the idea then is if we are true sons and daughters of the Most High, we start loving the things our Father loves, and we start hating the things that our Father hates. We have a change of mind, and therefore, because we have a change in our mind, our mouths, our hands, and our feet start doing different things than they did before. The actions, the deeds follow the doctrine. That's the point, and that's why it's fruit as a whole. All right, I think of this analogy. I thought of this story, and it actually kind of almost brought a tear to my eye. I thought about my nephew. He's all grown up now. He's got his own family. He's a lovely man. He loves the Lord and has a family, a wife, and kids. And I won't mention his name, but he'll know that I'm talking about him. He was 11 years old. It was before my son was born, and he was in our truck. We're going up to our cabin, and so it's me, my wife, and him. He's 11 years old, and he's at that time in life where he loves everything his dad loves. And so all the way, the three-hour drive up to our cabin, my nephew is 11 years old. He's saying, well, my dad says that that F-150 is better than that F-150 or that truck is better than that truck. And, well, my dad doesn't like that transmission. And my dad loves that shotgun, but not that shotgun. And I would wink at my wife all the way up. We just laughed. And what you could gather after the three-hour drive is this boy loved everything his dad loved and he hated everything his dad hated. And it was wonderful. Dear ones, that's what you and I are called to be as the sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Oh, I hate those things that he hates. And oh, I love those things that he loves. That's what we are to be. We start thinking differently and therefore we act differently. And so that's why it all begins in the mind. And that's why, do you remember when Jesus is asked the great commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus gets to the heart. Remember, the heart is the center of the thought life. They knew it was an organ that pumped blood. They used the heart as a metaphor for the center of the intellect, the will, and the emotions. But remember, the intellect is there. It's, it's center. And so Jesus, when I asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said to the person who asked, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your being. And the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor. So if you love God and you love neighbor here, your mouth, your hands, and your feet will start showing it. You don't have to prohibit murder for the one who loves his neighbor. You don't have to say, don't cheat on your wife to the one who really loves his wife. You don't have to say to someone, don't go after other gods to the one who really loves the God of the scriptures, the God of Israel. That's the idea. So it begins in our minds. Now, what I want you to see is the relationship now in the New Testament between what we believe, our doctrine, and how we obey our deeds, our fruit. And a great passage, to me, one of the most profound that shows this relationship is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Notice here in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, I'll get a little nerdy with you. We'll kind of get into some persnickety details. Let me read it first. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now notice here in verse 8, we see that we're justified, that is, we're saved from our sins and the wrath of God by faith, by grace. By grace through faith, and the obvious implication is faith in Christ is the only valid object of faith, you and I are going to be justified and forever spared the wrath of God and enter into the kingdom. It's by faith alone. One thing I want to point out right away, though, is notice here you have a demonstrative pronoun, that. In Greek, there are three different genders. There's neuter, masculine, and feminine. Well, normally, the demonstrative pronoun will link back to its antecedent in the correct gender. So in other words, if this was feminine, it would link back to faith, which is feminine. Faith here, pistis, and grace is charis. They're both feminine. But what's interesting is this is actually neuter. And what scholars have detected is when the demonstrative pronoun is neuter, it's not just referring back to the nearest antecedent, but the entire clause. So what is it that's not of ourselves? the salvation by grace through faith. But one thing I want to point out is to say that grace is not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God is very redundant. 
It's like saying, well, what kind of water? Well, the wet water, right? That's a tautology by definition. Water is wet. Or what if my son asked me, he says, uh, Dad, why does the sky look blue? And I say, because it looks blue. Well, that's a tautology. I've, I've added nothing to the argument. The point is, grace by definition is a gift of God. It's God's unmerited favor. Now, I'm just pointing that out because I'm showing you that the that is emphasizing the faith. That is not of yourselves. And so on the last day, the reason you can boast on judgment day to say, well, I was smarter than my neighbor. I was a little bit brighter. I came to faith, but they didn't. Or, you know, I was a little bit less sinful than my neighbor. No, that's not why you came to faith. It was a gift of God. That's why Jesus says in John six forty four, no one can come to me. Literally, no one has the ability to come to me unless the father draws him. That's what he does for his sheep, his elect. So even faith is a gift from God. You're completely saved, not by anything you did. The only thing that you and I contributed was rebellion. That's what we can, now am I saying we don't genuinely believe? No, we do, but it's completely given to us by God. We are given the ability to do so. So that's salvation through, by grace alone, through faith in Christ. Now in verse 10, notice we went from the doctrine now to the deed. He says, for we are his workmanship. Stop there. Whose workmanship? Well, God's. Notice he says in blue that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. I want you to think about this phrase, in Christ Jesus. At conversion, the moment you believed, you went positionally from one camp to another. As it says in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, you went from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, positionally. One day that will be realized is when Jesus returns. Okay, so that's what happened to you positionally. So the idea then is that you were created in the camp of Christ for what purpose? Well, for good works. So that went from here to your mouth, your feet, and your, in your hands. You went from believing the doctrine now to the deeds. That's why you were created in Christ Jesus. And notice he says, which God prepared beforehand. You were predestined before the foundation of the world for the good works that Christ has given you in him. So that's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And notice what's our action. This is the result clause so that we would walk in them. The term walk there, peripateo, means just that we walk it out. Now, let's relate this passage back to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 23, Jesus says to those who don't belong, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, that means, notice the bottom, we'll work our way back. They didn't walk in the good works. They did lawlessness. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means they weren't created in Christ Jesus for good works. Therefore, they weren't God's workmanship. Therefore, they were not saved by grace through faith. That's the relationship between faith and obedience. You always act on what you truly believe. That's the idea. Now, let me show you another passage I think alludes to this. is James 7, 21, excuse me, James 1, 21 through 22. And in this passage, we're going to see that James does not contradict Paul. He does teach that salvation is by faith alone, but he qualifies what kind of faith is it that saves. Notice what he says. He's there, he says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, let's begin at the very beginning again. Notice James says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Stop there. That's the idea of repentance. It's a turning from our old life. Baptism is something that symbolizes this. Baptism doesn't do this. Baptism symbolizes the turning from the old wicked ways. Why? Because when you're under the water, it's a symbol that you're dead to the old world. But when you come up, you're alive to the newness of life. And so the idea is that we're no longer to live in the filthiness and wickedness. We've turned from that. There's repentance. But notice he says, now here comes the faith. In humility, receive the word. 
So notice the term receive, decamai. Bob DeWay has done a wonderful job teaching us apodecamai and decamai in the book of Acts. What does it mean? It means to warmly receive like you would a family member who comes home. Or like a friend who's a friend of the family. They're like family themselves. You just welcome them in. And so this is the idea that someone is warmly welcoming the word. It's synonymous with saving faith. So they're warmly welcoming the word, meaning they believe it. The word is where the gospel is. And notice he says implanted. The term implanted there is very interesting. It's actually what we call a hapax legomena. It only occurs once in the Bible, never again. But it means uh, the term emphuton literally means to be implanted in such a way as to never be moved. To have a firm rooting so that you're never moved away from your position. And so that ties in. Think about the parable of the good sower. The seed, the word of God that is poured upon the good soil that has good roots. It never leaves the faith. So again, what do we see? And by the way, Bob was talking about this today, how there's a lot of false teachers who say, well, repentance isn't for the church. Well, that would be news to James. Here's your repentance, putting aside filthiness and that what remains of wickedness. Get rid of it. And what are you turning to then? Well, you're turning to faith, receiving the word implanted. There's your doctrine, repentance and faith. Now comes your deed. And by the way, I don't like the but here. I would, it's a day in, in Greek. It's more of a consecutive. I would use it and because it's not a contrast between faith and works. It's and if you believe, then do this. He says, and prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, if you really believe, you have to really act on it. I know I've given this analogy probably ad nauseum, and you might want to throw fruit at me and get a pulpit committee together. But remember the analogy I like to give is years and years ago, there used to be people who would go on these high wire acts. I think some of them occurred over Niagara Falls where people would go over and they would get money apparently to go over the high wire and risk death. And I think a lot of them end up dying. Maybe that's why it stopped. But remember, there was a case where one man had a little wheelbarrow and he would ask the crowd as he's going on the high wire, tempting death itself, how many believe that I can go over the high wire with my little wheelbarrow? And they'd get, yes, we believe you can do it. Go for it. And then he would say, well, who wants to get in? And then it's like, well, I've got that roast in the oven and better get, get home and let the dog out, right? Nobody wanted to get in. Nobody believed to the point where they would get in the wheelbarrow. What James is telling us is that true saving faith means that we not only believe, but we get in the, the wheelbarrow of Christ. We live it out. That's the point. That's why Jesus can say to some who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. They never really belonged in doctrine and deed. Brothers and sisters, perhaps there are some here today, or maybe you're listening Truth be told, you're convicted by the Spirit because you've been living in ways that are not in keeping with what Christ has called you to. We as believers in Jesus Christ are not the perfect here this side of glory, but we are those who are on the road to salvation. That narrow path, and as we fall in the mud puddles of sin, we are those who are convicted, who can't stand it. We don't sit there and plant our umbrella, get out the suntan lotion, and bathe in our sin. We say, I can't stand this. I'm getting out of the mud puddle and I'm going to keep on the narrow path to salvation in Christ. The unregenerate are on the broad path to destruction. And when they fall in the mud puddles of sin, they put the umbrella up, they break out the suntan oil and they never want to get out. They love it. That's the difference between us and them. Maybe today there are some who need to change the way they're acting that you have to live in such a way that you're not just a hearer of the word, but a doer. Again, we are not those who have absolute perfection, but we are those who have a sanctified direction. Let us be those who are constantly turning to the Lord from wayward deeds. Okay, let's go to the second point, and that is that we need to know that false converts will distort at some point in their lives, both the doctrine and the deeds of Christ. This happens with false teachers all the time. False converts love to claim and proclaim a different Jesus, a different spirit, 
and a different gospel. Let me give you an example of this. And again, I want to relate this to doctrine and deeds. So we see the lack of fruit in the false teachers' lives. Notice here, Paul is talking to Timothy. He's a pastor in Ephesus, and he warns them about the false teaching. 2 Timothy two seventeen through 19, he says, And their talk regarding the false teachers, he says, will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, notice here these two rascals, this Hymenaeus and this Philetus, they had a wayward doctrine. They didn't belong to Christ, did they? Why? Because they taught that the resurrection had already taken place. By the way, I'm going to be dealing with eschatology in a channel. I'm going to try to get off the ground. One of the doctrines that teaches that today is preterism. Full-blown preterism says that Jesus came back in 70 AD. Well, is that not the resurrection already taking place? Of course it is. It's heresy. Now, think about it this way. How could they say in Ephesus that the resurrection had already taken place? Wouldn't someone say, well, yeah, if that's true, why is Ed back here still in the grave? Or, or you know, Billy Sue or whoever it was, right? Bobby Sue. I'm bad with names, and these aren't obviously names from back then, but you get the idea. They would have some friend or relative. They were a believer. They're still in the tomb. Well, I think what makes sense is they were arguing it was a spiritual resurrection. Now, remember, full-blown Gnosticism does not come about until the second century, but incipient or beginning forms of it were already blossoming in the first century. Gnosticism has a radical separation between the soul and, or spiritual things, and the body. And I think what Hymenaeus and Philetus may have been arguing was that we're in the spiritual age, you've already arrived, and therefore it doesn't matter what you do in your body. And I think they were doing that so that they could make moves on women. I think it was tied to sexual immorality. If it doesn't matter what you do in your body, you're already in the spiritual age, then you can live an immoral lifestyle. That's what they were doing. And so let me show you the connection. Doesn't that make sense then? If they were teaching that, notice Paul says that everyone who really knows the Lord, who names the name of the Lord, is to what? Abstain from wickedness. In other words, you have to have not just the doctrine, but you have to have the deeds. Ironically, they go hand in hand. You have bad doctrine, you get bad deeds. But notice also Paul affirms the Lord knows those who are his. Think about today. What do we see in Matthew? 723, Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Why? Because they weren't the elect. They had wayward doctrine. They had wayward deeds. Here, Paul affirms that those who do belong to him, who do withstand these false teachers, the Lord knows those who are his, who won't listen to him and Aeus, who won't listen to Philetus and their wayward doctrine. They won't emulate their wayward actions. Brothers and sisters, in the last days, you and I are guaranteed by the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4.3, that people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting their ears tickled, they will heap up for themselves teachers after their own desires. And so, yes, at some point, they will be shown to be the false teachers that they are through wayward doctrine and deed. Dear ones, perhaps there are some here that are listening, maybe you've been watching false teachers, teachers that are giving you a different Christ, a different spirit, a different gospel. Do not tolerate it. Turn from it. Repent and follow the, the Christ of the Bible. And so that leads me to the final point, that being known by Christ to be one of the elect means that you are one who trusts and serves the Christ of the Bible. I'm convinced that one of the applications of Jesus saying, depart from me, I never knew you, is that many who say, Lord, Lord, on that day, they were serving a different Jesus than the one of the Bible. That was their problem. In fact, that's exactly what Paul alludes to here with the Corinthians. He warns them, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, notice how it starts in the mind, will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 
For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Brothers and sisters, think about those who have the social justice Jesus. They're following a social justice Jesus today, but they're not following Jesus. They're following Karl Marx. How about those who are following the Mormon Jesus? Well, they're not really following Jesus of the Bible. They're following Joseph Smith. What about those who have the Jehovah Witness Jesus? Remember, the Jehovah Witness Jesus isn't truly God. Well, they're not following the Christ of the Bible. They're following Charles Taze Russell. And it can go on and on. Think about the Muslim God. The Muslims don't follow the true God. They have themselves a moon God. And you can go on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to be those who follow, worship, and serve the Christ of the Bible. Let us be those who do not hear the words on the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Rather, if we serve, love, and believe the Christ of the Bible, we will be those who hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who obey the Lord Jesus Christ, the will of the Father, by both doctrine and deed. Let us be those people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these warnings in Scripture that we can know that in our fruit, what we believe and what we do, we must demonstrate that we belong to you all by grace through faith in your Son. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we learn these things, that if there are areas of disobedience in our lives, that we would turn from those things, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you. We also pray, Heavenly Father, that if we're believing false things, that we would turn from those that we would follow the Christ of the Scriptures. I pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters, you enable them to persevere, to remain on the narrow path until the day you come for us through the clouds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.